From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. The history of black communities in Nevada and Las Vegas is one of those areas that doesn't get a lot of coverage, and it's not something that's taught much in our schools, but a new documentary reveals the importance of African Americans here in the growth and development of Las Vegas. It's called Across the Tracks, a Las Vegas West Side Story. It was previewed at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year, and it was shown in Las Vegas last weekend at the Plaza Hotel and Casino. And it was produced and directed by Emmett Gates of Slickshin Culture. Emmett, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. You're well known as a visual artist in Las Vegas. You've owned galleries. You've curated exhibits. What compelled you to make this feature-length documentary about the West Side? Well, you know, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, my earliest art form was comic books, you know, which are just storyboards. Um, it was during the pandemic that I decided that I wanted to just go full on in, you know, do films, tell stories like that. A lot of people talk about the challenges of making a film like this, especially when you go have to go back in history. And I mentioned there was not a lot of coverage of the history of African-Americans here. So what were some of the difficulties of doing this? You know, there wasn't much because a lot of the people who were here, who were working at that time, they were, you know, they're still here. But as far as the coverage and why not so many people know it is, you know, Vegas is about reputation. It's tourism, you know, and so this is kind of a, a history that is embarrassing, you know, and Vegas is a city that doesn't like to be embarrassed. Other than hearing about Sammy Davis Jr. and some of the, you know, Moulin Rouge, uh, kind of prevented it from getting out there. You narrate so much of this film, but but there are certain points you feature UNLV Oral History Research Center director Clay T. White. She's speaking from a stage in front of an audience. Why did you decide on that sort of unconventional structure? Clay T. stands out because she is our griot. When I say our, I'm talking about Black Las Vegas. She has been here since 1992, and, and she has dedicated her life to, to gathering and, and solidifying the history, you know, where oral histories, you know, a lot of the research that I was able to do for this film came from people who are no longer with us because of her oral history program. Yeah, she's an amazing person. What about archival footage and photos? Where did you get most of that? Uh, UNLV Nevada State Museum, very helpful with that. Got a shout out to uh, Brian Palco Alvarez. You know, he's, he's a great researcher and, uh, yeah, so most of that, that's where it comes from. And if you're just joining us again, I'm here with Emmett Gates, the director and producer of Across the Tracks. It's going to open March 6th at the Galaxy Theater at the Boulevard Mall. The movie takes us from Nevada's statehood in the middle of the Civil War to the present. How hard was it to distill 150 years of history? I, I guess really how hard was it to pick out the most important parts of black history here to create this film? That, that's a great question because that's tough. You know, it's such a big history and deciding what to put in and what, you know, what we just don't have. Because, you know, we're bound to time. Luckily for me, I have some of the best local historians who were able to, you know, kind of clarify those important parts to get us to the next piece there. You grew up here, moved here when you were one year old. Um, uh, I'm not going to say your age unless you want me to. It's all good. Okay. You're 50. And I wonder if you learned anything while doing the film that you didn't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
plenty, you know, I'm talking to these people that grew up there, that lived there from the 1940s. Uh, by the time, you know, we got here, the, you know, the consent decree was already in play. You know, Vegas had been integrated. So that's all I knew from my personal experience. So to go back and talk to these people about a time that's, to me, unimaginable where, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, do certain things and, and they couldn't go certain places. That's insane to me, you know, but. Yeah, they laid this foundation lived, for you. They lived it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you had to say there is a common thread in all the stories, what would you say it'd be? You know, man, that's a tough question because everyone's so different. You know, I got so many different stories and different responses. Uh, but what, what the common thread is there's no anger, right? Uh, when people, in fact, in, in the film, Hannah Brown, who grew up there in the 1940s and 50s, she said that when people mention growing up in the segregated West Side, they think it was a prison. She was like, no, it wasn't. This was our family. This was our home. You know, so it, for, for those children growing up at that time, it wasn't that bad. You got to imagine down south, they were dealing with terrorism. They were dealing with, you know, Ku Klux Klan and stuff like that. You know, a mother had to worry about her son being lynched in the middle of the night. Although the Jim Crow policies were here, they were nowhere near as extreme as they were there. There is a, a history that's known, and you mentioned this earlier, you know, Sammy Davis Jr., Nat King Cole could play the strip, but they couldn't stay or eat there. And a lot of the film deals with uh, black performers here. They would often stay in boarding houses or hotels in the West Side. What effect did hosting those performers have on the West Side? The story is not unique in America because every American city has the exact same story. There was a place, there was a time where people of color had to remain in a certain place. What makes us different slightly is that we are Las Vegas, one of the most famous cities on the planet. And our story comes with those names, Nat King Cole, Pearl Bailey, you know, Harry Belafonte. And what's interesting is the, a lot of the, the people I'm talking to, when they were kids, they would see these people walking down the street. And when they're talking to kids today, I tell them, I said, just imagine going outside and seeing Jay-Z and Beyonce walk by because that's the only place they can be. That's incredible. You know, during the screening at the Plaza last weekend, the movie introduced Johnson's Malt Shop on Jackson Street, and the crowd erupted with applause. Talk about the importance of that place. Johnson's Malt Shop was was the teenage hangout at that time. That's where all the kids would go. But it's also where Nat King Cole would go. You know, uh, Mr. Johnson was famous for his chili. So uh, Nat King Cole and other performers, they would often stop there. And right next to that, you had Irene's Drive-In, which was another restaurant, a sit-down restaurant. And you had Mom's Kitchen. And, and the, uh, Jackson started to grow that way. Jackson Avenue. Mm started to become what they called the Black Strip or the Black Strap. That was the economic heart of the West Side. The interesting part of the movie talks about how crime began to affect the West Side, the late 70s and the 1980s. What happened to what used to be that middle-class haven? A number of things. Uh, First, you had integration. So now uh, black people could leave and live wherever they wanted in the valley. You know, because listen— Black people were making relatively good money as domestic workers or whatever, much better than they would make down south as sharecroppers. But they were not 
allowed to spend it outside of the West Side in most cases. So the, so the economics kind of stayed there. Uh, once integration happens with the Moulin Rouge agreement, a lot of the, the power movers are, are leaving. And then at the same time, you have the Vietnam War. A lot of men are coming back with problems, you know, PTSD, drug addiction, uh, the introduction of heroin in the 70s. And then, you know, we move up to the 80s, then crack gets introduced. So, yeah, it was all downhill from there. If it was put to you now, how would you describe the historic West Side? Now? Yeah. Uh, it's a place of hope. It's, it's a place of when you... And, and that's why I really wanted to do this film, because I want the world to know what these people endured, right? Mm -hmm. Especially the ones that stayed there. So easy to leave, you know? Um, it was so easy to not invest there. But there's those people there now that have never left. They've never left. They've invested. They've gotten into politics. They've decided to become the change that's needed to make any kind of progression there. Well, let's fast forward to now. They keep talking about revitalizing the historic West Side. The city has had this plan for a few years now called the 100 Plan. I've talked to mayoral candidate Cedric Career about it several times in this program, and this is supposed to help with revitalization. I wonder if you're skeptical about it. Do you think it's coming? I, I think this time, yes. I mean, you know, skepticism would be fair because of the myriad of promises that have been made in the past. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And it never happens. This time, I think it's going to happen. If you look at the West Side, the historic West Side, I think we have to specify mm -hmm. that because West Las Vegas is Summerlin now. The historic West Side, which is pretty much central now, that is the highest point in the valley. Never floods. There's no flood channels needed there. Never floods. It's prime real estate. What most of the people there fear is gentrification, naturally, mm -hmm. of it becoming ex an extension of downtown because it, it has the best views in the city. What the people, the people just want to make sure that the heritage is maintained. Yeah, and that people don't get pushed out. They don't get pushed out. And most importantly, that heritage is maintained, that you know what this place was and why it should be honored. Emmett Gates is the director and producer of Across the Tracks. It's a new documentary film just released that goes into the history and the importance of the historic West Side in downtown Las Vegas. And now with us is Tyler Perry. He's a UNLV professor of African-American studies. Tyler, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Joe. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you back, Tyler. What do you think makes the historic West Side unique from maybe other black American neighborhoods? Well, I think it's uh, similar to what Emmett was saying in that Las Vegas is a unique city. And I think the vast majority of people who come to Las Vegas, I mean, north of 30 million a year, just have no conception that there is or ever was a majority black area of town. Um, and that's largely because of the invisibility that has existed and persisted within that neighborhood um, within the city. And so the distinction is that when most people think of Las Vegas, they think of it as a city of opportunity. People move here all the time. Throughout the last part of the 20th century, it was the fastest growing city and remains so in many ways, um, even into the 21st century. And people just assume that when people would migrate here, that jobs were overflowing and that they were easily accessible. But the term Jim Crow would not be associated with Las Vegas in the popular imagination. But for those who resided here, particularly by the 1940s, 
Um, that term was not unfamiliar. And then the comparison of the Southern Nevada with the state of Mississippi basically crystallized the perception that Las Vegas very much invested in unequal practices solely based upon racial identity. And so the formation of the West Side, which some residents called a city within the city of Las Vegas, was very much separated both physically and conceptually among people that visited Las Vegas. And that was the entire intention amongst the city legislators. It's interesting. Emmett Gates said when he talked to people and people in the film, what he noticed was they're not angry because where they came from, it was so much worse. How would you contextualize that? I think that's certainly the case. And and one of the reasons why people continue to come to Las Vegas is because their relatives or friends tell them that they can make a higher wage within the city. So if your comparison is making, for instance, $8 a month as a sharecropper versus $5 a week as somebody who's working uh, to make beds in the casinos or working in the in the back area of the kitchen, of course, you're going to migrate to that area because economic opportunity is going to be central to how you see yourself socially advancing. But one of the things that also occurs is when people come as adults to the city of Las Vegas, and particularly when they're taken to the west side, I remember, I think it's um, Anna Bailey's oral history to where she's very excited to see the lights of Las Vegas when she gets into the taxi cab, but the cab keeps driving after the lights and into darker areas at nighttime. And soon she and the young women who are with her realize that this is kind of the same old scenario to where Black people are marginalized and... um, basically marginalized into a specific section of town that is wholly underdeveloped. And so I think the contrast of kind of the glittering city lights with the conditions of the West Side does still inform people in real time that this place is no different in many respects than what they came from. It was just there was more economic opportunity here. So it was worth investing in at least trying it out um, for a sustained period of time. Uh, Black people could come here. They could make a living. They were segregated. But then it was not through legislation that that segregation was sort of ended. It was when community leaders, casino brass, and other officials met in private to end it. How remarkable was the way that happened? I mean, it's it's quite remarkable because there's so many moving parts to it. Um, sometimes it's contextualized as if there was a single threat that happened to where James McMillan threatens the boycott um, or to protest and march on the strip to kind of force tourists to see how Las Vegas treated its residents, particularly in the historic West Side. But there were a lot of different things that were culminating into that particular moment, Um, one of which you could say is the formation of the Las Vegas Sun which is actually going to spotlight uh, racial discrimination and classism that existed within the city of Las Vegas. And Greenspan would be actually at the forefront of calling one of the, the meetings of the Moulin Rouge Agreement. What is interesting about what we call desegregation in Las Vegas is there was no formal document written up. It was yeah. basically kind of just an agreement that occurred amongst the city fathers, the governor, um, black activists, leaders within the community to where they sat around a table at the the Moulin Rouge, which had this symbol of a, the possibilities of integration within the memory of Las Vegas by that point. 
And basically the casinos, all but a few of them, more or less either capitulated uh, to the demands of kind of city fathers and the activists, or they kind of welcomed the possibility of additional dollars flowing into the casino. And so there's kind of a couple of different frameworks. I mean, on the one hand, there is this contesting against the racism of the valley, but there's also this willingness to recognize that the dollar bill is going to be the ultimate indicator of how the city is going to desegregate itself. I also wonder if there was a high point very early on, then a low point, then a high point, because the movie talks early on telling the story of John Hull. He was a black entrepreneur, a landowner, a rancher, gold prospector. He moved here around 1870 and he owned the Springs that would later become the Springs Preserve were black ranchers an important part of developing Nevada as we know it? And was their status higher in those very, very early days? Yeah, this is a great a great question. And, and the best way to, to kind of understand these phases that Southern Nevada goes through, even before Las Vegas was formalized as a city in the late 19th century, I mean, John Howell does do some very innovative techniques with agricultural uh farming and ranching within the valley and this and when you go on the tour of the springs preserve they tell you a little bit about that when you get into the early 1900s as you know a small but you know very vibrant group of black people settle within the valley there are some noteworthy examples i think one of them could be clarence ray whose oral history exists within the unlv special collections And his is probably one of the best to kind of understand how he saw the changes in real times throughout the duration of his life. I mean, he lived basically throughout the entire 1900s and saw Las Vegas change. And so he talks about how in the 1920s and and even into the 1930s, there was this kind of integrated mindset that Black and white residents of the Valley shared. Mm. And a lot of that was because, one, the entire population was very small still a railroad town. Um, I think it elevated to a city by that point, but it was still a pretty small place. Not a lot of people lived here. And then the second is that the black population was pretty small as well. And so the though there was a Ku Klux Klan chapter, there were attempted marches, they never panned out. There also was an NAACP that was formed in the late 1910s, I believe 1918. Um, that was here in the event that discrimination, racial discrimination was occurring. But throughout the 20s and the 30s, at least in the early 30s, there wasn't this strong indication that Las Vegas was going to be a Jim Crow town, a reputation it would earn a couple of decades later. But after the Hoover Dam project and more people of African descent come into Southern Nevada seeking jobs um, through the federal project is when you start to see very deliberate forms of racial segregation, Um, namely in one of the first real instances to where Black people couldn't live in the city of Boulder City, um, which was basically developed as a town for dam workers to live at. So that actually forced African-Americans to move into Las Vegas, the few that actually were able to obtain jobs on the project. And so the early 1930s is when you see um, these the implementation of racial segregation in, in a very deliberate form. Mm. 
And again, I'm going to go forward to the 1960s, Emmett. Activism was on the rise. Women like Ruby Duncan led protests on the Strip. We had an active chapter of the Black Panthers. What was happening maybe with jobs or perhaps with police that was forcing the community to act? You know, with the, you know, the assassinations of the 60s, you know, had had a, a huge impact and with the, the Vietnam War and things like that, young people were starting to, you know, g- gather a new consciousness. Um, so it, that was a national thing. You know, one of the issues, of course, was police brutality, you know, poor neighborhoods. And so that, that was happening all over the country. So it was no different here in, in Las Vegas. John Creer, who's actually the brother of Cedric Creer, who was the leader of the Las Vegas chapter, by the time he came in, because he was living in Oakland where the, where the Panthers were started, but by the time he came, came here, his focus was on sickle cell anemia, something that affects only uh, you know, black, you know, black people. And, you know, his father being the second black doctor in the city, you know, it gave him, you know, that, that that's where he put his focus, you know, was, was testing children for sickle, the sickle cell trait because it was new. You know, as far as people knew, they people didn't know about this. You know, and then of course, when Ruby Duncan, you know, when when they uh, the powers that be decided that they wanted to unnecessarily kind of lessen the the amount of assistance that single mothers could mm-hmm. get, the Panthers were right there to to help her out and uh, you know organize the marches and whatnot. So it was just, it was it was national. It was it was a national consciousness. You know, Vegas just wasn't immune to it. You know, there are scenes in the movie of really great pride where people overcame the oppression. They over they found success despite obstacles. And just like you said, they had ownership and they felt a togetherness there. I wonder what kind of inspiration you hope this movie stokes in those who watch it or especially in young people. Especially young people. You know, I, I want young people of color, first of all, if you're from Vegas, to understand the sacrifices that were made, right? If you go to the west, the historic west side today, there's plenty of vacant buildings. There's plenty of empty lots, which means plenty of opportunity. Uh, young people today are making more money than we've ever made collectively in history. I'm hoping that stories like from John Edmond, who, who invested in the west side and reinvested after his, his, his buildings were destroyed, I'm hoping that will inspire young people to say, you know what, how about we do it? You know, we, 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 we're making money, we're, we're doing good, Let's, how about we invest in our own community? And Professor, before we go, I want to ask you a question that I asked Emmett a little bit earlier. Does the history of the West Side give you hope going forward or are you more skeptical? One of the the brilliant aspects of this documentary is it prioritizes the voices of of people who have lived there. And I think when when most people kind of take this top-down narrative of the history of a place, and particularly talking about oppressed people, you look at the laws, you look at the violence, you look at the institutional racism, and it gives you a profound sense of despair. But then when you talk to the people who lived under these conditions, they won't romanticize it, but they will talk about how they survived, how they were resilient, how they always had hope, and how they created their own thing. Within the kind of the broader history of the West Side, you do look at these phases to where people pushed 
to force the the city to recognize to look in the mirror and basically recognize what it was doing to people who resided there who had invested in the formation and building up of this city so you think of people like Josephine Baker in 1952 uh, you think of the opening of the Moulin Rouge you think of the Moulin Rouge agreement you think of kind of these protests against the police um, during cases of police brutality and all of that, I think, culminates to understanding the history of the people who never gave up, uh, a history of the people who have always viewed a light at the end of the tunnel. And what I do see with the most recent plans to revitalize the historic West Side is actual tangible results. So you're not just seeing an announcement that's taking place, mm -hmm. but there are maneuvers that are going forward that you can actually visibly see that things are changing. If the momentum continues, you know, it's nothing but up from here. That's UNLV professor Tyler Perry, also with me, Emmett Gates, director and producer and narrator of Across the Tracks, a Las Vegas West Side story. Tyler and Emmett, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. And the movie opens March 6th at the Galaxy Theater at the Boulevard Mall.